everybody. Welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. Last week, I spoke about what I'll call the Wiltsey case, the disappearance of Timmy Wiltsey from 1991 and the 2021 New Jersey Supreme Court upholding the conviction from the 2016 trial. So I've really dug into that one again. I feel like I might have underemphasized a couple of things. So I'm going to jump right back into that. Then I'll deal with the case that dropped this week. So this is State v. Ludzinski, Timothy Wiltsey, Part 2. Listen to Part 1 if you want to get a better flavor. There's a couple of things that bugged me that I wanted to just hammer. So one of the things was a juror was tossed off the case at the beginning of deliberations. In fact, juror number one. The defense took the position that the fact that the juror had been removed from the case at the, during deliberations was sufficient to earn the defendant a mistrial. The trial court didn't buy it, the appellate division didn't buy it, and the New Jersey Supreme Court did not buy it. And, and really, uh, from a policy standpoint, what, what the juror did was something that, of course, this is happening all the time. We're all a bunch of handheld research experts with Encyclopedia Britannica times a gazillion in our hands. The juror number one decided to do some research as to the FBI's procedures for photographing evidence at a crime scene versus removing it and analyzing it and photographing it in a different environment. The relevant and important piece of evidence in this case was the blue blanket with some metallic component or metallic design, and it was located in proximity to other physical evidence that was uh, recovered from the back of Raritan Center in Edison, and this blue blanket was a hotly contested part of the trial. It was partially buried and hence excavated by the authorities, and uh, when it made it into evidence, there was no pictures, apparently, of the half-buried blanket. So that's what juror number one was trying to figure out, if that's procedure or not. Juror number one was removed. This is, a, of course, a huge trial, and there were backup jurors ready to roll, and uh, those uh, a backup juror was put in and uh, deliberated, and, and really no harm, no foul. The system worked in terms of having a, a, a bench, having a bullpen of jurors ready to go in case one of the main jurors fell out. The other part about the case, the Wiltsey case, the Ludzinski case, is the number of alibis that the defendant offered in proximity to the time of Timmy's disappearance. And, and they go like this. The, the biggest one was that Ludzinski saw a woman that she knew, a woman named Ellen. Ellen was allegedly a go-go dancer who would cash her welfare checks at the bank where Ladzinski worked as a teller. So she saw Ellen at the Sayreville Carnival, and she said something like, cute kid, and uh, next thing you know, there's two men by her. One man grabs her and makes a threat in connection with Timmy. She, Ellen, is going to watch Timmy for a minute or two. Eventually, the story goes that Timmy... Ellen, two men, and a little girl were seen walking away by the defendant. 
That was one version of it. Another version was that Ellen was with two white males, no little girl in this picture. Uh, in this circumstance, Ellen was going to put the kid on a ride and Ledzinski was going to go and get the drink. So she, it is alleged, walked something like 70 or 80 yards away from the ride to get the drink. In this version of the story, a knife is brandished, but seemingly in a joking manner. I really can't get that from the opinion how, how that was a, you know, flashing a knife in proximity to your five-year-old kid would be viewed as something funny, but perhaps one had to be there. The other piece of the puzzle is that the defendant said to the Sayreville PD along the way of the investigation, go ahead and charge me if you think you could. Really, really something bold here and off-putting, certainly, to the investigators who, in theory, are trying to find your child that's been abducted or harmed or killed. Really, really bizarre, bizarre stuff. Adds to the circumstantial evidence that leads to the conviction and the conviction being upheld. The other piece, I mentioned it previously, but I really want to think this through. The defendant stated she worked at Florida Fulfillment, one of her jobs, and that it was a Florida-based company. And she left it at that. It was only through digging by the investigators that they put together the fact that Florida Fulfillment, which may be or maybe was Florida-based, had employees and had an operation at Raritan Center in Edison. So that's a pretty slick dodge to throw that out there, that I work for such and such a company that has a distinct name indicating that it would be in Florida and not mentioning that the office that I worked at was actually right around the corner. All right, so that's it on the disappearance of Timmy Wiltsey slash State v. Uh, Ledzinski for now. But I will tell you this. It leads me to today's case, which just dropped, State v. Leo T. Little Jr., Justice Patterson, two T's, a unanimous decision by the New Jersey Supreme Court. And the reason I'm tying these two together is because of an excellent discussion and a new specific question to pose to jurors and really a model for questioning jurors regarding categories of evidence. It turns out that there had not been precedent on questions for jurors when it comes to specific categories of evidence. Back to Wiltsey Ludzinski real quick. In that case, there's no murder weapon. There's not even a discussion of uh, the, the method by which the murder was was uh, carried out by the defendant. The when is vague. One can presume it's the day the kid disappears from the carnival. The exact where is also vague. The remains are found by Raritan Center. The how is completely unknown. And as far as my reading of the case, there's not even a reference made during the trial to the how. Again, no murder weapon, no video, barely any physical or forensic evidence. So a circumstantial case. State v. Leo T. Little Jr. 
Leo T. Little Jr. is a passenger in a car. That car gets in a car crash with a taxi. There are words exchanged. The taxi driver wants the folks in the, in the car that uh, collided with the taxi to reimburse for the cost of the repairs. Little leaves the scene, grabs a gun described as a black Beretta. This is a pistol. Cocked the pistol, ordered the taxi to leave. The defendant, Little, then leaves the scene, runs from the scene, bounds up steps, and facts are drops an object and keeps on trucking. The object is then picked up by a woman. The object, one's going to presume, the state's trying to convince the jury that the object was the Beretta, and the woman who picked it up are never found. They're ghosts. So the state proposes to add questions to the list of questions the jurors would be asked, specifically, if the state fails to produce a gun, would you nonetheless be open to a conviction? And so the defendant's counsel objects, the court overrules the objection, and the court trial court tried to mold a nice, concise question that would uh, ferret out anyone who would absolutely not convict in the case that the state could not produce the gun. Gets up to the Supreme Court on a, this interesting issue. Again, you have, you have a circumstantial case. There, there's eyewitnesses, and this is all happening you know, close in time. It's not happening 30 years ago, like the Lodzinski case. But the court in this case gives the trial judges precisely what is needed under the circumstances rather than leave all of our fine criminal superior court trial judges to fend for themselves on these difficult issues and leaving the state and the defense to uh, spar over these things, the court exercises its oversight role. And I think it does so brilliantly in general and in particular here where there's an education component to this opinion and also a rulemaking component to this opinion, such that when an issue like this pops up, an evidence category, a missing piece of evidence that one might logically conclude would be essential to pursuing a case and uh, getting a conviction, that there's a question for that. And I will, this question will deal with the particular case because it talks about a gun, but I'm sure that you can white out gun and uh, or weapons charges and address questions for jurors using this format. Here goes Justice Patterson's question to pose in, in an absence of weapon case where it's a weapons charge. Here you go. The state is not legally required to produce a gun if a defendant is charged with weapons offenses. But you, as a juror, may choose to consider the absence of any evidence in deciding whether the state has met its burden of proving defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. If the state did not recover and does not produce the gun allegedly used in this case, but presents evidence in the form of testimony, will you be able to be a fair and impartial juror and decide whether the state has proven that defendant is guilty 
beyond a reasonable doubt of the offenses charged. So there's a little balancing act there. It's not pro-state. They found that the trial court had crafted a question that was too favorable to the state. This one is a little balancing act. And I think it's a, a fine way to straddle this issue and that this question, this bit of education from the Supreme Court will certainly have its utility in other cases where there's categories of evidence that are missing or that are expected. And I've said this numerous times on the podcast, we're all consumers of lots of media now. So if there's no physical evidence and no video or no audio, nothing to really grip us, I believe it's going to be more and more challenging for jurors to uh, find find their way to a verdict. If the state can't produce a show, and it's always been there's always been elements of a a dramatic play in trials, but now we're entertained 24/7 on our phones and computers and televisions and so forth. And we're going to expect to get a multimedia presentation and or physical evidence that we can uh, see and maybe touch. And it's really interesting how society and juror service is colliding. And State v. Leo T. Little helps us get there. Likewise, back to Wiltsey and uh, Ludzinski, that even in a world of multimedia, multi-inputs all the time, circumstantial cases can be addressed by a jury or the Ladzinski case of course is is the circumstantial case that convicted a mother of killing her five-year-old child and the little case of course it's going back now for new trial for a new uh, voir dire questions for jurors is also a combination of some eyewitnesses uh, eyewitness testimony but you know, it's going to be a competition between the state and the state's witnesses and defense counsel to aggressively try to make that black Beretta turn out to be maybe not a black Beretta. Maybe it wasn't cocked and to really call into question the facts of this very, very light factual case to get to the Supreme Court, but an interesting issue. And the court, again, once again, adjudicates a case, sends it back, and gives very crystal clear instructions to the trial court, prosecutor, and state. That's it for today. Appreciate you guys listening. Once again, if anyone has a case that's percolating in the Supreme Court on the way up, it's just been to the Supreme Court. Maybe there's a remand you want to talk about. Please get in touch with me. Likewise, I'm always looking for folks that have knowledge of the court. Clerkships seem to be a magical way of uh, getting knowledge about the New Jersey Supreme Court. And, and then when you get out into practice, if you practice in New Jersey and you practice in a trial-based area, that you may very well find yourself back there as an advocate. So that's it for today. Thanks very much. Signing off from the Bold Sidebar. Bar.